Three weeks ago, we lit the first candle on the Advent wreath and remembered the hopes of Christ's coming. Two weeks ago, we lit the second candle and remembered the love of Christ, who laid down his life for us. Last week, we lit the third candle and remembered the joy that Jesus brings to us. Today, we light the fourth candle, which is the candle of peace. As the angels announced to the shepherds when Christ was born, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor has you have broken as one the day of Midian. For every boo of the champion warrior in the battle of tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the, of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you will, let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for sending us your son. We thank you that Jesus has reconciled us to you by making peace through the blood of his cross. We pray your peace, which passes all understanding, would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we await his glorious return. In the name of the Prince of Peace, we pray. Amen. Peace. As the Shalios just informed us, that is the theme for this fourth Sunday of Advent. And I have to confess that I've been tempted to see this as the weak link of the Advent themes. You know, hope. Hope makes sense because Advent is about our, our hope in Christ's coming. And love makes sense to talk about since God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And joy, joy can be difficult to talk about because it can be a stressful and, and painful time of year for many. But surely the coming of our Savior is met with joyful expectation. But peace is for hippies. It reminds me of those cheesy songs that they made us learn in elementary school. You know, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. You know, let, let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be. It's a catchy song. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about the sentiment in the song. 
You know, the, the, the line, with God as our Father, brothers all are we, that's straight out of 19th century Protestant liberalism that denied the authority of Scripture and the miracles like the virgin birth and the resurrection and tried to reduce the gospel to this message about the universal fatherhood of God and universal brotherhood of man. And somehow that should just make us all stop fighting and get along once we realize that. And it feels a little bit like that old Mad TV sketch from several years ago where Bob Newhart played the therapist. Uh, does anybody, does anybody know what I'm talking about there? If you haven't seen it, you really should. It's a woman walks into therapist's office to talk about her claustrophobia and all these other deep issues that she has, and deep-seated mental health issues, and he has just two words for her. The words are, stop it. Um, zero interest in getting to the root of the problem, just kind of knock it off. Uh, stop being that way. And that's the problem with cute songs about peace. They have this wonderful, beautiful vision of, of peace, but they don't seem to have a clue why the problem of war and, and conflict exists to begin with. They don't really have much of a serious plan to fix it. You know, step one, teach school children to sing this song. Step two, not sure. Step three, world peace. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced. You have to assume that people are basically good and we just tend to kill each other because somehow we haven't realized how much better it is to not be killing each other. I could go on, but my point is, you know, I've, I've perhaps been less interested in the theme of peace because the word peace itself is loaded with some maybe political baggage for us and in our culture, uh, thanks to the generation that brought us the hippies. Thank you. Um, each, gen yeah. <laughs> each generation brings its own craziness into the world. I'm not, you know, but... Peace turns out, though, to be a very important theme in Scripture. Just think of the Apostle Paul's standard greeting in just about every letter, grace to you and peace. But the Bible's view of peace is much more compelling than the songs that they taught us. The Bible clearly has something to say about the root of the problem and definitely shows a real solution. And as it turns out, the peace that was meant to be fortunately for all of us, does not begin with me. So today's text from Isaiah 9 shows us who peace on earth ultimately begins with and ends with. For us, for unto us a child is born, and he is the Prince of Peace. But first, Isaiah does show us something of the root of the problem. We see the anguish there in verse 1 and in verse 2. This language of people walking in darkness and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. The word deep darkness in Hebrew, it's actually a compound word. It's put together from two parts, the word for death and the word for shadow. In Psalm 23, this is the word that is translated shadow of death. So why does Isaiah say that people are walking in darkness? What does he mean? Well, Chapter 9, verse 1, starts with the word but, or nevertheless, depending on your translation. And when you see a word like that, it's an engraved invitation to, to look at what came before it, look at the verses preceding this, and see what the connection might be between this and what came before. At the end of chapter 8, we find Isaiah calling people to trust in God's promises, ultimately to trust God. At that time, Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah who are facing a threat of war because uh, 
their estranged brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel have formed this alliance against them with the nation of Assyria. And Isaiah is basically saying, don't worry about that, because the Assyrian Empire is about to conquer both Israel and Syria, and Judah has bigger problems of its own to face and to deal with, like the need to repent of their own sin. So Isaiah says, essentially here at the end of chapter 8, don't fear what the people around you fear. Instead, fear God. And there's a whole sermon just in that point if we had time for it. So often I think the first step to sharing our culture's idols is that we share in our culture's fears. And so the beginning of wisdom and discernment for us is, as the Bible says, to fear God. And that means living by God's word. Isaiah drives this point home in the closing section of chapter 8. This is verses 20 through 22. I'll just read them for you here. Isaiah says, "To To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, meaning the word God has spoken, it is because they have no dawn. There's where the imagery of darkness comes into the picture because they are disregarding God's word. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and their faces. They'll turn upward and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So they're turning away from the light of God, the light of God's revelation, God's word. And it's no surprise that they end up in darkness. The reason they are in darkness is they refuse to listen to God. God has spoken, but they don't believe him. They won't allow their lives and their words, their thinking, to be shaped by God's word. This is crucial to understanding chapter 9, verse 2, correctly. The darkness is more than just a general a way of talking about the suffering we see in this world. Isaiah has in mind its root cause of that suffering, our rejection of God. And the result is the hunger, contempt, distress, the gloom of anguish. We find the same basic idea in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, right? Except that Paul in Romans talked about all people rejecting God as he revealed himself, he made himself known in creation, whereas for Isaiah, it's it's how God has revealed himself in his word. But the root problem is the same, rejection of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. If you reject him, what naturally is going to follow? The result is the same, all sorts of contempt, distress, anguish, and the point Romans is working toward is that everyone is in this situation, Jew or Gentile. So the darkness of Isaiah 9 is a darkness in which we all have walked, the darkness of sin, the darkness of rejecting God. You know, you find two sort of, in my mind at least, contradictory pieces of advice floating out there in the world. Sometimes people will say, you know, you need to be authentic be your true self, your authentic self. And number two, be your best self, or the best version of yourself. What if those aren't the same thing? What if your true self, 
who you are deep down right now is not the best version of you. I don't know about you, but I find my true self could use a little work. A lot of work, in fact. My wife would back me up on that, probably. Peace on earth is not going to begin with me. It's not going to begin with us. You know, in music class, we sang, let this be my solemn vow to take each moment and live each moment for peace eternally. Then we went out to recess and couldn't figure out how to take turns on the swing set and tried to take each other's heads off with a tetherball. There's a deep problem with our nature that comes from rejecting God. Denial of the problem and just dwelling on this idea of peace isn't going to do us a lot of good if there's something broken within us that prevents us from achieving that vision. And Isaiah shares in this wonderful vision of peace, and we do see it in verses 3 through 5. But Isaiah's message of peace is not a vision for humans to achieve on their own, Isaiah is presenting us with a promise of what God will do. The the you in verse 3 is what God will do. God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. By the way, just side note here in case you're wondering about the verb tenses here, Isaiah is speaking about the future, and yet he's writing about it in past tense. It's called prophetic future. It just means that he is uh, so convinced and certain of what God is going to do that he's writing uh, as if God has already done it, because God's word, once he's spoken it, is as good as done. It's also interesting that I'm talking right now about how Isaiah is writing and I'm, write, I'm talking in present tense, even though Isaiah was writing in the past. So verb, I don't know, verb tenses are confusing this morning. But Isaiah, is, this is future prophecy, even though it says past tense, just to have that in mind. But the point, the point is that this is God's work. In verse 4, the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God is the one who sets them free from these burdens. And the Midian reference is it's a reference to the story of Gideon. Gideon and Midian. There's a nice little rhyme there, help you remember. But God used doubting and fearful Gideon back in the book of Judges to deliver actually the same region that was mentioned in verse 1, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, to deliver them from the Midianites. God called Gideon, who required so much assurance to even go to begin with, and then on the way to battle, God whittled down his forces, kept sending uh, soldiers away from Gideon's army to make the very important point that this would be God's work of deliverance and no human accomplishment. So we see, baked into verse 4 there, a reminder that this is certainly God's work. Another side note, just to be clear, I'm not saying that since peace on earth is ultimately God's work, we refrain from the work of being peacemakers at all. I'm not saying that. I would say we need to be realistic about that work. God may work through broken vessels in a broken world to do some good, but that's not our ultimate hope of where ultimate peace will finally come from. Our best efforts can't get to the root of 
the problem. Peace on earth does not begin with us. So who does it begin with? Well, we turn to verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Beautiful promises. And God is clearly promising here a human child that will be born, right? For us, to us a child is born and a son is given. By calling him a son, just looking at the whole context of Isaiah, he is most likely meaning that he is a son of David, King David. God had promised uh, that David would have one of his descendants reign on his throne. And even here in Isaiah, after the civil war ripped the, the nation that David ruled apart, ripped ten tribes away from David's dynasty, that promise of an heir to the throne of David becomes a promise of restoration to all of God's people. But as is clear from this child's names, or his name, he is no mere human child. A child is born, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. A child is born and the child is called Mighty God, a human child who is God Almighty. So the promise is not merely another person, another leader through whom God will work, just like Gideon. The promise is God himself, born as an infant. Isaiah goes on to tell us about the way that he will rule. We'll consider what he has to say about the names of this king in a moment. But first, I think it's important to review some of what we've seen already as we've looked in the book of Isaiah about how he brings peace. The glorious king that we see in this passage is also the suffering servant that we saw in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus was not born to immediately take over the world but he came to suffer in our place. I read earlier in the service from Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, Isaiah 9, this, this passage, beautiful as it is, leaves open a question question that Isaiah 53 answers. How can our darkness be turned to light if our darkness is that we have rejected God, sinned against him? If we are under just condemnation, how can we be given peace, especially peace that he will uphold with justice and with righteousness, if justice demands punishment for sin? And the answer in Isaiah 53 is that upon him, upon this very king, this very prince of peace, is laid the punishment that brings us peace. So peace with 
God through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where peace begins. But that's not where it ends. As Christ himself said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And as Paul wrote, would write later, that Christ will reign until every enemy is under his feet, including death itself. So Christ is reigning now, and for true and lasting peace, we wait for his return. As we follow him and as we look forward to his return, we can rejoice by looking to who he is, who leads us now, and who will bring us home. Isaiah gives us such a beautiful picture of the character of Christ our Savior, the identity of Christ our Savior. For what time remains, I just want to consider each of the titles that we find in verse 6, starting with these three, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. We'll look at that one first. Isaiah actually, for what it's worth, uses the noun form wonder. It's Wonder Counselor. It's the same root that the book of Exodus uses to describe the miraculous judgments God poured out on Egypt, his, his wonders, your translation might say. Also, in the book of Judges, it's the same root that the angel of the Lord uses in Judges chapter 13 when Samson's dad, Manoah, asks this angel's name, and the angel of the Lord says, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? has the idea there that it's not something you are able to comprehend. It doesn't just mean extraordinary counselor here. It means literally miraculous beyond human comprehension is his wisdom as counselor. Now, David's first successor, Solomon, was given extraordinary wisdom by God, but the Messiah's wisdom goes beyond that. His wisdom is miraculous and wonderful beyond comprehension. And that is good news because life is often complicated beyond our comprehension, isn't it? Maybe you faced situations in your life where it's just, it's hard to sort through this, to figure out what, what we ought to do, what we should do. Sometimes it's not exactly clear. Sometimes the right thing is clear and we just feel like it's unclear because we really don't want to do the right thing, right? But, but often it really is genuinely difficult and certainly we could point to any number of issues in our nation or the world today that are difficult, that we could, we could sit around and complain about how things are, but coming up with a solution or even figuring out where the problem started, whose fault it is, if somebody is at fault, if it's a miscommunication, coming up with answers like that are a different story. In some of my worst moments as a parent, happen when the kids have some conflict that I just don't have the bandwidth to dig into and resolve it. I don't know who's telling the truth or whose turn it is, and a little bit I don't care. You know, in those moments, my response is just, knock it off, you know. Let there be peace in my house and let it begin with you. <laughs> just stop it, right? My wisdom in those situations is anything but wonderful. My children can back me up on this, but all the complicated situations in your life, all the strained family dynamics, all the centuries-old conflicts that we see in the world, Christ's wonderful, miraculous wisdom is able to see into the heart of all of them. 
They are not too wonderful for the wonderful counselor. Nothing, in fact, is. He is also mighty God. Now, some people would argue that we should just translate the word God as godlike. It would be translated as something like godlike hero, but in the very next chapter, Isaiah uses the very same phrase, mighty God, chapter 10, verse 21, and he clearly means capital G, God. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. They're returning to their God. And the word Isaiah uses for mighty most often means warrior in the Old Testament. I wouldn't necessarily advocate for translating this as warrior God. It might give us the wrong impression. After all, this, this is building up to Prince of Peace, so it's not like he's you know, some kind of god of war as, as we would think about it. But the point is that he does have the power. He does have the strength. He does fight for his people to defeat his enemies, to deliver his people. Doesn't necessarily, the Bible says, doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but he is certainly willing to defeat evil and protect his saints. See, evil is real, and it does need to be defeated, and Christ does have the power to overcome it because he's not a mere human authority, but he is mighty God himself. The next title is Everlasting Father, and this one can be a little bit confusing because we're talking about Christ, we're talking about God the Son, and this says Everlasting Father. We don't usually call Jesus Father for good reason. We're trying to keep the Trinity clear and don't want to invent some kind of new heresy, but, but again, thinking about this in the Old Testament context, a king would be seen as having a fatherly role in caring for his people. As with both human government and human fatherhood, too often authority is, is abused, but a good father is not thinking about his own benefit, but seeks to guide his children to maturity for their benefit. So Christ, as a father to his people, tenderly shepherds and cares for us. He's already laid down his life for us. There is a sacrificial, self-giving care. I think that maybe this helps us balance out that warrior God concept. Like a good father, he will fight, he will protect for his children, and he has all the power of Almighty God to protect them. But he doesn't simply wield that power for his own benefit, but to guide us into maturity, to lead us out of who we are in our true selves now to become our best selves, who we were made to be in him. And he is an everlasting father. You know, the Old Testament is full of genealogies, which are difficult to read sometimes, these long lists of who begat who. One of the points we are to draw from those lists, though, is that they all died. Even the best of them, the best leaders, the best rulers, have this problem in common, that they died. But in Christ, we have a ruler who cares for us tenderly like a good father, who is from everlasting to everlasting, whose care for us does not end. Actually, in each of these first three titles, I think 
we see a divine and a human element to it. He is wonderful or miraculous, but he is a counselor who we think of as, as the human uh, advisor, uh, one who is wise. He is mighty. Uh, that image of the, the uh, this is part of what they would have expected or thought of their, their king's responsibility to be is, is to be the one who is able to lead them into battle and protect them. But he is God leading his people into battle and protecting them. And then certainly with the Father who is everlasting. Father referring to, uh, again, the concept of who the king needs to be and how he relates to his people. But this Father is everlasting to everlasting, has no end divine and human. We have a king who is able to exercise true wisdom to defend and deliver his people and has the character to care for them as a loving father precisely because he is both divine and human, both everlasting God and a child who is born to us. And the final title on our list is the one that we will close with the final aspect of the name of this child who is born really what this is all building up to I believe is Prince of Peace the word Prince is related to it's actually an unusual word that uh, Isaiah uses for government uh, in both verse 6 and 7 but it's related to the word Prince so I think these concepts are tied together his whole government, his whole rule in the world will be characterized by the fact that he is the prince of peace. And you may be familiar with this concept, but peace in scripture, the Old Testament concept of peace, is not merely the absence of war, not merely the absence of, of conflict, not just that we can go about our business undisturbed with nobody bothering us. The Hebrew word for peace or sh is shalom, and it means so much more than the absence of conflict. It means right relationships, right relationship with God and with one another and even extending to all creation, to the land in which his people dwell. It means, in fact, the peace that was meant to be, fruitful and flourishing relationships between God and all that God has made, everything reconciled to God. This is the kind of peace that we read about in Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is, in Jesus. Again, all the fullness of God in this child who was born. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. That is the gift that we ultimately celebrate at Christmas. God himself born to us as a child in whom the fullness of God dwells and the one who by the blood of his cross took our punishment to reconcile us to God, to restore the broken relationship, to give us peace with God. And that's not where it ends, but when his work is done, he shall reconcile a whole world to himself, new heavens and the new earth. He now reigns as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father. He is our prince of peace.
So peace on earth began with his birth, and praise God, it ends with the new heavens and the new earth. His government and his peace will have no end from this time forth forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you have made to us that we read in the book of Isaiah as we have seen. As we think about what Christmas means, about what we celebrate, uh, we think of who Christ our Savior is and all that he did for us, all that his death and resurrection and his reign accomplishes. We confess that we have so often preferred the darkness to the light, that we recoil from your word, that we want to go our own way. We have strayed like sheep. And yet you still sent your son. The true light came into the world to show us your glory, the light shining in the darkness. And you have sent your spirit by which that same light shines in our hearts with the glory of Christ, our Savior. We thank you for his atoning death that brings us peace with you. We can know that we are reconciled to you, that the price has been paid, that there is nothing left for us to add or accomplish. And we thank you that it is ultimately his reign and his rule that will fix all the brokenness around us, that will in the end drive away all the darkness. And we will suffer those things no more. We pray that you would help us in the meantime to live as followers of the Prince of Peace, as citizens of his kingdom. Above all, making it our priority to use whatever gifts and opportunities you've given us to bring that good news, to announce that peace to those who need to hear it, and also to live the kind of lives that you have called us to live, so far as it depends on us living at peace with those around us, praying for peace, not because we believe that we are the ones to accomplish this, but because we want to live in a way that points the world around us to the true Prince of Peace. Help us to live for his glory so that through us you might glorify your name. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.